1: Astonishing Legends would like to thank a Mint Mobile, Mac Weldon, Com, and our contributors at Patreon.com for making tonight's show possible.
2: On Halloween of 1865, Wilfred Mikhail Habdug Voynich was born in Telshe, Samogitia, which was at the time part of the Russian Empire. It is now Lithuania. Times were uneasy in Russia when Voynich was young. Descended from Polish-Lithuanian nobility, he couldn't help but become involved, and he became a radical revolutionary. At one point, he was caught during an attempted rescue of two friends who'd been sentenced to death for their actions. After that, he was sentenced to penal servitude in the Russian village of Tunka, Siberia. It was used to forcibly resettle political prisoners. During his imprisonment, he contracted tuberculosis, and as a result, retained a hunched posture the rest of his life. He was held in Tunka from December 1887 through June 1889, when he managed to escape. During his time there, he gained a moderate understanding of 18 different languages. Voynich was exceptionally well-educated, acquiring several degrees, including one in chemistry from Moscow University, and he ultimately became a licensed pharmacist. After all his time as a revolutionary, One could say he settled down to the trade of becoming an antiquarian bookseller, opening his own bookshop in London. A few years later, he met and married another former revolutionary, Ethel Lillian Boole. If you're a computer programmer, that last name will no doubt sound familiar to you. And if you're not, Google the phrase Boolean search, which may require a Boolean search itself to find the results. It's named for Boolean algebra, which was introduced by Ethel's famous father, George Boole. It's safe to say that without his work in differential equations and algebraic logic, computers as we know them would not exist today. Ethel herself was a noted novelist, writing the incredibly popular novel The Gadfly, which was a massive success in her own lifetime. For those of you not familiar with it, it primarily focuses on the culture of revolution and revolutionaries, and, as a result, was incredibly popular in Russia. As they say, write what you know. Wilfred Voynich's bookshop in Soho Square in London was doing well since it opened in 1898. So in 1914, he opened another one in New York. He was now quite the expert in antiquarian books and was amassing an impressive collection of them himself. At one point, he was even investigated by the FBI because he possessed something known as Bacon Cipher, It was a method of concealing messages devised by none other than Sir Francis Bacon in 1605. This would not be the most famous thing that Voynich would acquire, though, and you might even say that without the acquisition of the subject of tonight's show, he might not be very well known at all. But fate intervened in Wilfred Voynich's life, and one particular book placed him firmly in the annals of cryptographic history for eternity. That book now known in academic circles by its reference number where it's held at the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library, is MS-408, the Voynich Manuscript. It's called that because it has no other known title, and Wilfred Voynich's acquisition of it from the Jesuits brought it into the limelight. Since then, this dazzling hand-drawn array of botanical illustrations and seemingly impenetrable code has baffled the best cryptographers in the world. They've applied their considerable code-breaking skills and a relentless series of algorithms to its text, all to no avail. In fact, in the past several hundred years, no one has been able to decipher more than a few words, really, and even that is disputed. At first appearance, the Voynich manuscript looks like some kind of medicinal herbal guide, but the 170,000 characters within it defy explanation. There's also not a single mistake or correction made in its pages. The plants it depicts are a mixture of fantasy and reality. Are they meant to be plants at all? Or are they some sort of allegorical cover for what at the time of its authorship might have been seen as arcane secret knowledge that may separate those who possess it from life and liberty? Tonight, we begin our series on the book that became bigger than the man who rescued it from obscurity. Tonight we tackle the Voynich Manuscript.
0: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is
2: Forrest Burgess. Well, certainly, the Voynich Manuscript is the limit text of Western occultism. No one can read it. It is truly an occult book the late ethnobotanist,
0: mystic, psychonaut, lecturer, and author, Terence McKenna. Join us tonight for the first part of our series on the legendary Voynich Manuscript. And we're back. Hey, folks, so glad you can make it. Man, we've got a lot of exciting stuff planned for the rest of the year, and not just for the show, but also for Patreon and our merch, so keep an eye on things. That's it? No specific announcement about any of it? Yeah, well, you're always telling me not to paint us into a corner. I just, I want to make sure things are lined up before we start teasing them out. Ah, very good. I I agree with that, actually. So uh, please proceed. (laughs) All right. I just want people to know things about stuff are happening. All right? Oh, that
2: really narrowed it down. Yes, thank you. Things about stuff. Okay. Well, tonight's show is the first of a series on one of our most requested topics, the Voynich Manuscript. So grab your headphones or your wine or your knitting and your closest pet. Unless that's a fish. Oh, yes. Unless it's a fish, please. You know, we don't want to accidents here and get ready to dive into the Voynich Manuscript.
0: All right, you heard a little bit about it in the cold open, but tonight we are covering something that people have been asking us to cover for a pretty long time. <laughs> yes, they've been
2: asking us since the manuscript was first written.
0: Yes, many hundreds of years ago. Seems that oh, we way. we don't know. Maybe <laughs> we'll
2: find out when it was uh, written. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, that- it's one of the most mysterious
0: documents In the world. Every time there's a development with it, we get a flurry of incoming social media messages about how it's been solved or decoded or figured out. We love those. You can always send those, but the usual solution is not one that stands up to any kind of test. And a lot of times it doesn't last more than a few days out in the public before they retract it.
2: (laughs) And like a lot of the (laughs) mysteries we cover here on the show, It's great because we can look at it both ways. If it's a true document, if it's real, it may contain secret, arcane, mystical knowledge that was meant for a very special audience of learned, enlightened people. Or if it's a hoax, it's a fantastic hoax because to this day, it's not been satisfactorily solved or debunked or proven to be a hoax. So either way, it's a great story.
0: Yeah, and we're betting that a lot of our audience is actually familiar with it because it's right in the wheelhouse of the people that like our show generally. But if you haven't heard of the Voynich Manuscript, It's pretty easy to find online if you want to do a little cursory research of your own. It's all you got to do is pop it in and images of it will come up. It actually was scanned by the Beinecke Library where it currently resides and scans are all over the internet. We're going to provide some links to that where you can get to and you can look at it yourself. But the fascinating thing about it is, or trying to understand what it looks like, is that it's a parchment book. It's many hundreds of years old and it is filled with hand-drawn characters in a language that no one can figure out as well as artistic renderings primarily of a botanical nature, but there are some human figures in it and there's uh, zodiacs and all that kind of thing. So there's a lot of artistic presentation in it that is really pretty compelling when you look at it. And I think that's why a lot of people are fascinated with it. It is a puzzle that has no solution. that has been around for a long, long time and nobody can figure it out.
2: Right, whoever drew this thing, whoever came up with the text and the fake language or the real language that's just heretofore unknown by anybody had some skill in doing it. That is one thing that is observed by researchers is that whoever was doing it knew how to put a book together. And you have to realize that back then there's no digital publishing. This wasn't created with movable type like the Gutenberg Bible. This was hand-drawn by quill pen using paints and inks. And remember, the parchment, you know, had to be cut by hand. The binding had to be made by hand. The ink had to
0: be made by hand.
2: (laughs) Yeah, so everything about it had some skill to it, except there are some questions about some of these mystical drawings. Some are very well done, the botanical ones especially, but some of the human figures seem to be kind of amateurish,
0: childish in a way. Yeah, and that's the fascinating part of it. And in addition to that, the book itself is a mixture of fantasy and reality. There are definitely things in the book that correspond to Plants, for example, that we're all familiar with, or zodiacs that we're familiar with, but there's other stuff that people can't find, and that seems to be fantastical. So that makes it even more complicated. And here's another thing that's fascinating, especially when you look at what Forrest just said about how it was produced it doesn't have a single mistake in it. Nothing scratched out, or changed, or rewritten anywhere in the book, which is pretty mind blowing when you consider that it has. 37,919 words in it. And that's a little bit of a guess because you can't really tell what a word is in a language that nobody knows, but that's nearly 40,000 words from start to finish and 8,114 what they call word types. There's a difference between a word token and a word type. A word token is a word that no matter how many times it appears, if it's repeated over the course of the text, and a word type is how many types are making up that overall message. So a little over 8,000 word types, a little under 40,000 word tokens. Right, and
2: I believe the word token is used by researchers because, to my view and my understanding, each of these characters, these individual characters that may be individual letters— in some sort of mystical alphabet. You know, they could be just individual letters or they could be whole thoughts or they could be parts of words. We don't really know and it doesn't seem to fit any known pattern. We're going to get into the analyzing of this so-called language, which some call Voynichese, but we just don't know what these characters do. They have some patterns to
0: them, but none that are readily recognizable by linguists. All right. Before we dive into a more specific description of the manuscript itself, we did want to tell you if if you're not driving or you're at home right now, you can get to a computer. There's a lot of places to see it online. One that I like actually is at this guy's website. It's Jason Davis, D A V I E S dot com. Jason, J A S O N D A V I E S dot com slash Voynich. He has a uh, on his site high-resolution scans of it that were done by the library that it currently resides at, which we'll be telling you about in short order. But that's a good place to go and look at the book if you want to see what it looks like. So, Forrest, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about the book itself, about the manuscript itself, I should say. Right.
2: Well, here's what everybody knows about it, basically. Just a description of what this thing is, what this book is. Well, the Voynich Manuscript is a handwritten and hand-drawn book, essentially, like we just said, and it's often in academic circles called a codex, which is just an academic name for a handwritten book, typically, though, of spiritual scripture, classics of literature or ancient texts. And the Voynich Manuscript gets its name from the man who purchased it in 1912, a Polish Lithuanian rare book and antiques dealer named Wilfred Voynich. And it's been written in an unknown language, as we just said, with a unique character alphabet written left to right that's not been universally accepted has satisfactorily deciphered, although several researchers have claimed they've made some progress with their decoding. And some seem to have actually done that, while others just kind of have a claim. <laughs> and we're going to talk about that in the current research and status of the manuscript later on. But for right now, let's talk about the text and illustrations. Those have been written down onto parchment, or what's called vellum, actually, which are animal skins, usually from young lambs, goats, or calves. Oh, it's a little sad. (laughs) Well, yeah, but it's really the best. (laughs) Not to upset anybody, but that's what you wrote on back then. Or sometimes a codex was written down on papyrus, which comes from Egypt, as a lot of people know. But... Generally, animal skins were the most durable and produced the best texts of the time. And in the case of the Voynich manuscript, protein testing done in 2014 revealed that it was made from calf skin and that the parchment was unwritten on before the manuscript was produced, and that was shown by multispectral analysis. So although the parchment itself was decently crafted, it's considered to be of a average quality overall. So not the highest quality, but not bad. And the estimate is that it took at least 14 or 15 entire calf skins to create. And here's something that's curious. There's an indication that much of the ink was added not long after the creation of the parchment. And this assessment comes from a company called McCrone Associates. And they analyzed the manuscript. But this assessment was not found in their official report. But I want you to remember it because it is going to be a significant finding or a purported
0: finding later on. Now, the interesting thing is that the binding and covers that are on it are made of goatskin, but are not thought to be the original covering. And this is because there's insect holes on the first and last folio pages of the manuscript, and it's likely that a wooden cover existed before the later covers, and that there was a tanned leather inside cover due to the discoloration on the page edges. Because So when you think about how old this book is, it's easy to imagine that the cover has come and gone a few times over the centuries. Yeah, it's had been rebound over the ages? Well, the book itself measures 9.3 by 6.4 by 2 inches and is comprised of around 240 pages, which remain in the manuscript. And those are culled into 18 choirs with some pages missing. I hadn't actually heard of a choir until we started researching this book. Mm. A choir mm. of paper is a measure of paper quantity, usually meaning 25 sheets of the same size and quality. Yeah, that's
2: Q-U-I-R-E, not C-H-O-I-R. Yes, yes,
0: right, (laughs) Right. Uh, Q-U-I-R-E. Now, some of the pages are large fold-out sheets, and most of the pages have illustrations or designs and diagrams that accompany the text, but in some cases, it's text by itself. It's described as around 240 pages because the exact number of pages depends on how you count the fold-outs. The page numbering that's found in the manuscript is actually consistent with the 1400s, and it's on the choirs, and it goes from 1 to 20 in various places. Then the top right hand, top corner of the pages, has been numbered from 1 to 116, but using numbers from a later date. So it's thought that the manuscript had at least 272 pages collected into 20 choirs at one point due to the various gaps in the numbering on the pages. And a number of pages were missing by 1912 when Wilfred Voynich acquired the manuscript. It also seems likely that the bifolios of the manuscript, meaning a single sheet of parchment that's been folded in two, have been reordered throughout its history. So that page order that the manuscript is in today may have actually been in a different order when it was first created. So here's the other fascinating thing. Some of the drawings and text appear to have been retouched at some point. Uh, Listen to this quote from Wikipedia. Computer scientist Jorge Stolfi of the University of Campinas highlighted that parts of the text and drawings are modified using darker ink over a fainter earlier script.
2: That's interesting. So whoever owned this or it was given to somebody to restore seems they touched it up over the years to keep it preserved. So it was taken care of to a degree by either the owner or whatever society owned this thing. Uh, Also, you know, the Wikipedia entry on this is pretty well done. It's very thorough with a lot of good descriptors, And there's a lot of detail to it. So if you really want to know about it, it's a good place to start. Yeah, and there's a lot of really good, uh, great source citations in it as well. Yeah, exactly. Well, we're going to talk about the text. And speaking of the entry, you can find the description about every facet of the manuscript in the entry here. But talking about the text specifically, this is what the description says from the entry, is that every page in the manuscript will have text in it. And it's mostly in that unidentifiable language we talked about, but there are some bits of extraneous writing that appear to be in Latin script, which is interesting. Somebody was making notes in it. And of course, Latin is the language of academia and has been since the Romans. But the bulk of the text in the 240-page manuscript is written in that mysterious alphabet of some kind, some kind of mysterious language. And the text does run from left to right, like English. And most of the characters are composed of just one or two simple pen strokes with a quill pen. So it was easily done. But if you examine them closely, they are kind of beautiful. They have some artistic quality to them. It's not just chicken scratches. But some dispute exists as to whether certain characters are actually distinct. But a script of 20 to 25 characters would account for virtually all of the text. The exceptions are a few dozen rare characters that occur only once or twice each. Now that's from the description in the wiki entry, as we said. And the other thing that's interesting about this is that there's no obvious punctuation, which is unlike a lot of languages, right? So we know (laughs) punctuation gives us a lot of meaning, but didn't seem to need it in this text here. So a lot of this text that is found in the book is written into a single column in the body of the page, but the right margin of this text in these columns and the paragraph divisions, sometimes they're slightly ragged or or uneven, and sometimes there are stars in the left margin. And there's other text that occurs in charts or as labels associated with these illustrations that you'll find. So some things are labeled, but all of it, of course, is in this strange, unknowable text except for some notes, again, that appear to be possibly in Latin. And as we said before, what's interesting is that there's no indication that there are any major errors that we know about or corrections that have been made, at least not big ones. And as you might know, if you've seen a documentary or done some reading on scribes and monks who have done ancient illuminated texts, you know, mistakes are made. But what they could do on vellum is you could take a knife and you could scratch out that ink once it's dried and you start all over again. Or some things were totally scratched out and started over. So it doesn't seem to be the case here with this manuscript. Now, the description talks about the ductus in the manuscript and what that is, the direction and strokes and pattern and speed with which the characters seem to be made. There's an indication that they flow very smoothly, meaning... This person, well, let me put it this way. It's like somebody knew the language. They weren't sitting there trying to make it up as they went along with all these different characters. So from the analysis, it looks like somebody knew these characters very well, or they practiced a lot before they put it down on the paper. And that gives the impression that these symbols were not enciphered. Because there's no delay between the characters when you go to analyze them. You know what I'm saying? Like somebody didn't just draw this thing and then they had to stop for a minute and go look up in a chart what the next coded letter is. Like I said, it flows like a language. Like when you're a that's kid and you've got
0: your decoder ring and you're trying to write a secret <laughs> message still, to your buddy. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It takes you three minutes to write one word because you're looking up each each thing in a table or graph. So that's fascinating because you would expect that in a written and coded text. Hi, I'm Kylie Godsey, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now, back to the show.
0: All right. So you've heard a little bit about the text. Now let's talk about the illustrations. And since no one can read the text, researchers have used the type of illustrations that are in the manuscript to divide it into six different sections. And each section has its own style of illustrations with accompanying text and its subject matter, except for the last section, which only has drawings of little stars in the margins. Oh, now, somebody was doodling. Yeah. We. Th- but, and that's the thing. Hey. It's, it's hard to know, right? <laughs> Why, <laughs> what, what is this stuff? Why is it there?
2: you know it's hard to know when you know again some pages or whole sections might be missing or it might be in one of my theories is that it's a continuing work maybe they were going to continue on with more knowledge into the book or more
0: of a hoax oh yeah that's a good point well 112 of the folios have herbal illustrations now on each page in this section there are one or two plants with a few paragraphs of accompanying text which is a typical format for european herbals in that time period Here's a quote from Wikipedia. An herbal is a book containing the names and descriptions of plants, usually with information on their medicinal, tonic, culinary, toxic, hallucinatory, aromatic, or magical powers, and the legends associated with them. An herbal may also classify the plants it describes. It may give recipes for herbal extracts, tinctures, or potions, and sometimes include mineral and animal medicaments in addition to those obtained from plants. I just had to look up medicaments. (laughs) I had no idea what that word is. If you heard all the audio that our editor hopefully so graciously cut out, Right. Um, you would have heard me talking about the word medicament. That was a new word for me.
2: It's a lot of fun, too, but not as fun for
0: me as tincture. Yeah, tincture, tincture. That's, a, that's a fun one. Tincture, anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, some of these <laughs> illustrations are copies that are larger or cleaner copies of the sketches in the pharmaceutical section. However, none of the plants in the section are clearly identifiable, which is really funny. Yeah, that's, that's,
2: it's weird, isn't it? I mean, yeah. just, there may be reasons for that, as we'll see later.
0: 21 of the folios are of astronomical illustrations, and these contain circular diagrams with astronomy or astrological themes, with sketches of the stars, sun, and moon. There are 12 diagrams of symbols for the zodiacal constellations like Pisces, Taurus, and Sagittarius. Each of the 12 diagrams has 30 female figures, which are nude or partly nude, lined up in two or more concentric circles, and who are holding a star that is labeled, or the star is attached to one of their arms by a cord or a ribbon. The last two pages of this section, Aquarius and Capricorn, appear to be lost. Some of the diagrams appear on the large fold-out pages we described. It's all mystical. There's
2: really uh, no way to tie this with anything readily known, which again, which is why it baffles so many people. Well, there's 20 folios that are of a biological nature, and that's kind of a dense, continuous uh, text interspersed with these figures that is mostly showing these small nude women, and some of them, they're bathing in green pools of liquid, or they're wearing crowns. And sometimes the tubs are interconnected by an elaborate network of pipes. It's pretty odd. It's nothing too graphic. Like I said, this is more the weirdly childish looking kind of doodles in the page. But obviously, they seem to point to some kind of mystical knowledge that has uh, astronomical value to it. But that's the biological section. There's a cosmological section. That's 13 folios. And those mostly have diagrams that are circular, but they're also obscure in their appearance and not readily recognizable. And this section also has a lot of foldouts, and some of them span six pages. Those are commonly called the rosettes folio, and they include a map or diagram, and there are islands within them. I think one uh, foldout has nine islands, or there's small rosettes connected by causeway, so it's representational of something, some strange land or place, or place in the cosmos. We just don't know yet, but there's, of course, a lot of speculation, so it's very interesting that this has connections to the stars, you could say. There are 34 folios that have to do with pharmaceutical subjects. Many of these are plants with small labels next to them, kind of indicating either what they are, plants, roots, or leaves, Or there's writing next to them that is supposed to tell you what to do with them. So we just don't know when you don't know the language here. Some of these objects seem to resemble apothecary jars, and they could be commonplace looking items or very fantastical. And usually there's text near each one of these And then there's a section of 22 folios, which is just recipes, because you always love a good recipe book. (laughs) I don't know if these are for just uh, consuming, but recipes for, again, making these, it seems, medicinal tonics. And many of these have drawings that are, you know, where there's text broken into short descriptions, and each is marked with a star in the left margin. So now you might be wondering, what's the purpose of this Voynich manuscript? Well, the general consensus is that it's some kind of pharmacopoeia to address topics of medicine and the curing and healing arts, but from a medieval perspective of early modern medicine, where there's a huge tie-in between herbal remedies and
0: astrological signs. And magic. It all bled together. Yeah, exactly. Well, they
2: they believed it was all connected as above, so below. So your horoscope had a lot to do with your health and your well-being. Not only that, but the plants around you, because again, they're not getting medications and prescriptions from a giant pharmacy that grinds up chemicals. They're made from the plants you can find around you. And as we've seen with modern medicine, there are a lot of people who nowadays believe that herbs and The plants around you have very powerful medicinal properties to them, so those are valued. But that's all you had back in them ages, just the plants around you. But if you knew what you were doing, you could affect a pretty decent cure. But another really fascinating subject that this book seems to tackle, one that I personally find fascinating and is very connected to the history of this book and to medicine and magic of the day, as it was seen, is alchemy. And some of these tubs and tubes that you'll see in the biological section, some people believe that this has a tie-in to the practice of alchemy, which would be really early chemistry. But on the other hand, they don't seem to resemble any alchemical equipment that was used in the period.
0: That, again, may be just something that's representational. No matter what the Voynich Manuscript is, it has been carefully examined by professional and amateur cryptographers and researchers, including the best American and British military codebreakers from World War I and World War II, and still no one can say they've definitively cracked it. In fact, there was uh, one particular unit that it was the only thing they couldn't crack. Everything else they tried, they cracked, but they could not crack the Voynich Manuscript. Yeah, we're going to talk about that just briefly here
2: coming up, but it's interesting that since this... Manuscript was discovered in 1912. Codebreakers from World War I were looking at it, just a few years after its discovery.
0: Yeah, so it's, it's pretty amazing, and they couldn't figure it out either. And there's been a good number of theories put forth by researchers to this day. You probably have seen it in the news fairly recently, actually, of people trying to figure out what its purpose is and who wrote it. So it's become the subject of much speculation and inspiration because it may contain secret knowledge or arcane knowledge that only certain people are supposed to know. And in fact, in in the time in which it would have been created, having that secret knowledge could be punishable by death or imprisonment. Yeah. So yeah. It's, there's a good reason right there for things to be encoded. Now, it was donated by Hans P. Krauss in 1969 to the Yale University Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library, where it's held today under the catalog number... MS-408. The Beinecke Library, by the way, is truly amazing, super amazing to look at. You should Google it if you haven't ever seen it before. You probably will have seen it and not known that that's what it was. It's just fabulous architecture, really amazing building and structure.
2: Yeah, they have some amazing, rare, really rare, of course, volumes there. They have a Gutenberg Bible, at least one of them. But maybe one of their most famous residents there in the library is the Voynich Manuscript, because this manuscript is often called one of the most mysterious books ever to be found. So let's start looking at the story of the Voynich Manuscript, because oftentimes these really well-known and famous texts and objects have their own history and their own legend to them. And it's no different for the Voynich Manuscript. Well, there was one documentary that we thought was pretty good and doesn't really bog you down (laughs) with a lot of details like we tend to do. So if you want a good breezy viewing on it and really get some decent information for the most part, there is a documentary called The Voynich Code, The World's Most Mysterious Manuscript, and that was directed by Klaus T. Steindl and Andrea Sulzer, runs about 50 minutes. It was released in 2010. A lot of the research that was shown in the film, I believe, was done prior to that in 2009. And that'll make an important difference to a lot of these theories that's coming up. So that's interesting there. But it's available on Amazon Prime for free if you have Amazon Prime. And it's out there somewhere. So we're going to borrow some ideas from that documentary and maybe follow the story a little bit from there because we think it lays down the story of this manuscript in a very dramatic way. Most coded texts over the years have eventually become deciphered. And that has a lot to do with our modern... Uh, computer technology and the very smart people that write algorithms to figure out codes, except that the Voynich manuscript has been attempted to be deciphered for centuries and still no one can do it. The author is still unknown and it's still written in that unknown, unique alphabet. And the images that go along with it are equally cryptic, because if you could figure out one or the other, either the images were somewhat known or the text was somewhat known or crackable, You could probably figure out what this thing was for. Well, one of the first cracks at it, I think professionally, or at least militarily, was done at the headquarters of the U.S. Military Intelligence Service, where the cryptographers were so good, they actually ended up cracking Japan's secret purple code in World War II. That would be the code name for it, the purple code. So these guys knew what they were doing. And William Friedrich Friedman, he was the services director. He was one of the best cryptographers in the world. And he and his team, for practice in between assignments, they would go through and decode historical cryptic texts just to get their skills up. And they were so good at it, they decoded many of them, maybe every one that they tackled, except for one, which is the Voynich Manuscript. It was the one code they were unable to crack. So they basically gave up. So another thing that's good about this documentary, like visual medium, is you get to see it and you get to see it examined up close and as experts go through uh, by some counts 230 to these 240 pages as we explained earlier depends on how you count the foldouts as a page or a single page what these experts have examined in the film is that there's about 170,000 alphabet characters each one has been digitized and gone over and plugged into some kind of computer program and still people are struggling with it so let's back up to at least the manuscript's history as it appears in the 20th century. So, as we said, 1912, just after the start of the 20th century, Wilfred Voynich, who was that antiques and rare books dealer, he lived in New York at the time. Well, he went to Villa Mondragone, about 12 miles southeast of Rome, near the ancient town of Tuscaloom. And he was on a mission looking for rare books, like a lot of rare book dealers will do. They either go to very old, ancient places or very obscure places. And here in the U.S., what you'll see is uh, book dealers going to little tiny towns spread out of nowhere looking for rare first edition volumes. So he's kind of doing the same thing. Well, Villa Mondragone stored historical books from a Jesuit school, and Voynich was allowed to search a trunk coming from the estate of one of the most well-known scholars of the 1600s, Athanasius Kircher, and he was a German Jesuit scholar from the 1600s, and that's where Voynich found the now-famous manuscript, which he then bought and would spend the rest of his life trying to decipher it, and he would pass away, unfortunately, without even coming close to a solution for its riddle. Well, the trunk that Voynich was able to examine belonging to Athanasius Kircher, we should all know a little bit about this guy, because he's another one of those polymaths, Major, major genius of the time, or at least one of the most learned men of his day. Here, uh, he lived from sixteen o two to November sixteen eighty. So he's in that time frame, which is important as well for this manuscript and its history. And as we said, he's a German Jesuit scholar who had published around forty major works of scientific value. And he was most known for his interests in the fields of comparative religion, geology, and medicine. And there's been comparisons to him with Leonardo da Vinci, another character who may be coming up soon. So he had an enormous range of interests, and he was labeled with the title Master of a Hundred Arts. It's not bad. Not bad to put on your resume, don't you think? Yeah, not bad at all. (laughs) He was mostly there, like I said, for his day. Probably had a bit of an ego. Who knows? I'm just making that up. But he had claimed to decipher the hieroglyphic writings of ancient Egyptian But it turns out later that a lot of his assumptions in the translations were later found to be incorrect. Oh. But uh, hieroglyphics does have a lot to do possibly with the Voynich manuscript. There are some comparisons there. And he did actually correctly establish a link between Egyptian and Coptic languages. And he's thought by some historians as the founder of Egyptology. Again, not too shabby there. And here's another curious thing that might connect him to the Voynich Manuscript, not just with possession of it, but a lot of his work was in the early study of microbes observed through a microscope. And as we'll get to a description later on, I know that sounds kind of crazy for that early of a time there, but some people believe possibly some of the images in the Voynich Manuscript might be only seen through a microscope. So that's kind of curious there.
0: Yeah, or at the very least, some kind of optical magnification that exactly. Yeah, early on. Ahead of its time, yeah.
2: Right, right. Speaking of ahead of his time, Kircher was one of the first to suggest that the plague was caused by some kind of infectious microorganism. And he, he suggested measures to prevent that as well. And he had a keen interest in technology and mechanical inventions. Some of the inventions attributed to him were a magnetic clock, automatons, which we always love. We, we just really love antiquarian automatons here. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty cool. And he's credited with inventing the first megaphone. Another one that he's incorrectly credited with, though, is the invention of the magic lantern. But he did study a lot of optics, so that's interesting. And he was a real star in his day, scientifically. So Kircher's trunk of books was the home, apparently, for the Voynich Manuscript for many years, who knows how long, but let's talk a little bit about the current home of the Voynich Manuscript and and that amazing library building. One thing I learned about it, the Beinecke Library, is that there are sheets of Vermont marble that are used to let a little bit of light in, a nice soft glow, but keep out the harmful rays of the sun from their library collection. But it's just a beautiful,
0: very futuristic in a way looking kind of place. Like It's like a library within a library. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. The Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library is the literary archive of the Yale University Library in New Haven, Connecticut. And it's on Yale University's Hewitt Quadrangle. And it was designed by Gordon Bunshaft of Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill, and completed in 1963. And when you look at it from the outside, it it is pretty striking looking, but it's also a sort of a simple block when you see it. But it's interesting. It has an interesting facade to it. However, the inside of it is just absolutely breathtaking, which it has a large central core that is many floors high. The lighting is just beautiful. It's really something to see. So you have to Google it if you haven't seen it. Uh, It's Beinecke, B-E-I, N-E-C-K-E, Rare Book and Manuscript Library. Now, it recently underwent a massive renovation, and it reopened in September of 2016. It had been closed for a year and a half to go through all those renovations, which included replacing the entire HVAC system, the heating and air conditioning, and also expanding its teaching and exhibition capabilities, according to Wikipedia. Another super fascinating thing is the the glass-enclosed central stacks inside the building, which is what you see in all the pictures and are which are not accessible to the public, can actually be flooded with a mix of Halon 1301 and Energen fire suppressant gas if fire detectors are triggered. So that's designed to put down a fire very, very quickly. You'll find that same kind of system or a similar system in restaurant kitchens that's designed right. to shut down a fire by robbing yeah. it of all its oxygen almost immediately. Well, a grease fire, water doesn't do a whole lot except
2: exacerbate it. And you don't want to be caught inside that library, I don't think, once those halon things go out because it
0: sucks all the oxygen out of the room, right? Yes. It gets really hard to breathe. (laughs) And one of the other things that's fascinating about it and this is uh, a case of the library actually affecting the entire world in terms of rare books and manuscripts, was that an infestation of the death watch beetle was found in 1977 in the library. And they helped pioneer the non-toxic method of controlling the death watch beetle and other paper eating pests by freezing books and documents at minus 33 degrees Fahrenheit for three days. And so now every new book that comes into the library is given this this deep freeze treatment. And that's actually a widely accepted pest control system used in other rare book collections. So uh, it's pretty fascinating that that's in there. The other thing that's really interesting about that is that the Death Watch Beetle is actually mentioned in a famous book, Tom Sawyer, which <laughs> there's a great quote from Tom Sawyer, which I, I don't know. Maybe some people will remember, but probably most won't. Old beams began to crack mysteriously, the stairs creaked faintly. Evidently, spirits were abroad. A measured, muffled snore issued from Aunt Polly's chamber. And now the tiresome chirping of a cricket that no human ingenuity could locate began. Next, the ghastly ticking of a death watch in the wall at the bed's head made Tom shudder. It meant that somebody's days were numbered. So that's the death watch beetle in one of the most famous books of all time that apparently was trying to eat some of the most famous books of all time (laughs) until the Beinecke Library figured out how to freeze it to death.
2: Yeah, without being too invasive or destructive, -destructive, non-destructive pest control, you could say. And boy, that old Sam could write, couldn't
0: he? Oh, yeah, pretty amazing. Not bad (laughs) prose. Well,
2: as with every famous object with a lot of history and lore attached to it, there are people that are attached to that as well who've spent many years, maybe most of their lives, trying to hunt down a mystery connected to it. And what's good about the documentary as well is that we get to see some of these people and hear them speak. So let's take a look at some of the characters the people that are behind the top research done on the Voynich manuscript and some of the technical examinations, the analysis done and the technicians behind that and what they have to say. Now in the doc, there is one guy that kind of takes us through. I guess he's, you call him the lamplighter, Scott?
0: He's the, 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 <laughs> he's, yeah, it reminds me of the lamplighter in A Christmas Carol.
2: Yeah, the guy who takes us through the story on his quest and we come back and refer to him. And that guy is named Renee Zanbergen. And he's one of the main guys who's devoted many, many years to its study. Uh, I really like him just from seeing him in the documentary. I think he's very level headed about it, but very passionate too. And you could call him the star of this thing. Uh, But he's been working on deciphering the text for years and years. And what's interesting, I find, is that uh, it kind of thunderstruck him, I guess. Like a lot of people that we see who get wrapped up in a mystery, there's that one seminal moment that hooks you. Well, When he first saw one of the images from the book, he said he immediately had a feeling that this was something he could decipher and read. And I kind of understand that. I met one person who she can look at the, you know, the word jumble in the newspaper Sure, sure. Somehow she can look at that and she says she can see it in her mind's eye unraveling and forming the correct words. I feel like my grandmother like used instantly. to be able to
0: do that, actually.
2: Y- yeah, some people can do that. I mean, <laughs> yeah. like, What is that, that capability? I have to sit there for 10 you know, minutes to a couple of hours <laughs> staring at it to get it, and they just get it right away. Well, he, he had that feeling. It's like, this is something, I can read this. I know I can. But, of course, as the years went by, he realized he was wrong, that he couldn't read it. And maybe he just wasn't the right audience for it, but that hooked him. And so he spent many, many years after that, and he's written a book. He's got a great website up about it, just trying to crack the secrets behind the book. So here's something that Zanbergen said about his his quest to to crack it and the nature of the, the manuscript, which I thought was really interesting because it fits a lot of other mysteries that people are trying to solve, like Oak Island. There are, with the book, so many drawings and characters and figures, and that allows for so many different interpretations. So you can think of any theory that you might come up with on your own or, or seeded by some other's work about this book, and then you'll find evidence in the manuscript that fits your theory. Right, yeah. So you can find that, you can find that square peg... And you don't really have to hammer it into that round hole. You'll find, if you keep looking, you'll find a square hole to hammer your theory into. And where did we see this before, Scott, speaking of Oak
0: Island? Actually, yes. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of when we went, you and I went and visited the Philosophical Research Society back in April of 2019, and saw scholar and writer, Dr. Gustavo Turner, who has a PhD in English literature. He specialized in early modern literature in Shakespeare, and he gave a really amazing talk there at the Philosophical Research Society about the whole controversy relating to Sir Francis Bacon and Shakespeare, and the idea that Shakespeare's plays were written by Sir Francis Bacon.
2: Right. Well, he was neutral about the actual uh, conspiracy, I think. He was there to point out how many books had been written about that possible conspiracy, I think dating back to the mid-1800s really is when that phenomenon kind of really took flight there. And just the volumes and volumes and the amount of lifelong research undertaken by people who were convinced that there's something there. And his point was that if you do look closely enough, you'll find something. That possibly fits your theory. Right, it's just one of those. It's one of those puzzles that keeps on giving, and it's the same thing with the Voynich manuscript.
0: Yeah, and the the connections might be tenuous. They might not stand up to scrutiny, but in other cases, you might trip onto something that does. And I don't know about your characterization of him being neutral. I I got that he thought it. <laughs> he, I, he thought overall a lot of it was somewhat humorous, but well, to, it was. But I to mean, be that's fair, his his fascination yeah. was related to. How much it branched out in the diaspora that it that it bred, and that and that is what's interesting about this particular case because it does seem like a lot of people, as you said, were able to apply their own beliefs and get something back out of the Voynich manuscript that matched up with what they were thinking, not realizing that they were steering the ship even if they didn't mean to be.
2: Yeah, but it happens with every one of these types of mysteries and you know, historical conundrums that people are are researching is that you'll get theories and hypotheses that seem pretty credible. Like, well, I could believe that if we find a little more proof. Yeah, I'd, I'd buy that to the ones that are way out there. And it has to do with the nature of the people researching it. So you get all kinds. But yeah, with this uh, Voynich manuscript, though, there's not too many way out there ones uh, theories, but there's a few that might be considered a little fringy as far as what the manuscript really means and what it's about, to theories about it that seem to make sense and would fit if we just find a few more bits of evidence or details about it. It would make sense. But there have been a lot of experts who have examined the manuscript, and as we see in the film, one of them is Paula Zayats, who are just there really to use their tools and skills and knowledge to take a closer look at this manuscript to just tell us what's there, really. So she's a restorator, and she has spent hours and hours poring over this manuscript. And like a lot of researchers, she believes that the greater portion of the drawings have to do with botanicals and herbals. And that seems to be the main conclusion for most people. And the book is mostly about the plants that are drawn within its pages, and their root systems, their leaves and flowers, and some of it seems to be inspired by real plants, and some drawings seem to be inspired by unknown plants or representational plants. And she believes the text has to do with where to find these plants, how to grow them, how to use them, the things that you can use them for. So it's a lot like we mentioned earlier about a book, an herbals, That's the term for the book. And she points out there's another major aspect to this book and medicine of the era, and that was the zodiac. So this book also features zodiac charts and star charts, like we mentioned. It's just as important as these herbs in figuring out how to cure
0: you. Now, the way the drawings and the text are laid out in the book, the graphics, if you will, do seem to have parallels to nature or organic shapes, like the text and the illustration on a page will be patterned and laid out to resemble a spiral galaxy, maybe the way
2: the text is laid out, you could say like the, the graphic artistry of the book, there's some design elements to it. Like like Scott said, the words will be patterned, and so they kind of look like a spiral galaxy, something that you would see in the heavens, but also something relating to earth. And that's an alchemical type of philosophical idea.
0: Yes, and another thing that's really fascinating, I th- I was super, super fascinated with this, was that some of the illustrations exhibit optical phenomena, meaning that if you're to spin the page in a circular motion, or repeat a series of animations, it looks like the images become animated, like in a zoetrope. And what's really—that's yeah. th- amazing because I, you know, I—I I don't know about you, Force, but I learned about zoetropes in film school. You went to USC, I'm sure you learned about them as well it was generally thought to have been invented in 1833. And that was like when you had the round one that you would look in and the still images, it would rotate and the still images would appear to be animated. But it's a variation of these drawings that appear in the Voynich manuscript that you might refer to as a phenakistoscope, And a phenakistoscope Mm -hmm. is what's considered the first widespread animation device that created a fluid illusion of motion, the very first one. However... That was first again revealed in the 1800s. So if we can get down to figuring out when the Voynich manuscript was actually authored, and and of course we'll be talking about that, we're talking about way, way, way before then. There's nothing that indicates, there's nothing that says in the book, oh, you should spin this or spin it around or hold this over it and you'll see animation. But all the elements for that are there on the page in the Voynich manuscript, which is really fascinating to me
2: yeah it what it points to is, and and Paula Ziatz will say this as well, is that whether the book is genuine or a hoax, it points to a lot of creative imagination by the author. You have to be able to imagine something and, and draw it out. If you put it on a table and spun it, it makes an animation. You know so yeah. that takes a creative mind. So right. either way, if it's real arcane knowledge, it's a creative way of jotting that down in a mystical way that again, that's not meant for everybody. Because uh, as we've talked about before, sacred knowledge is not for the masses, only the learned and those seeking an earnest attempt at gaining enlightenment and knowledge. And if it's a hoax, pretty well done, man. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's it's very clever in the way it's, it's approached here. But getting back to her observations, again, she looked at it with great magnification and made some interpretations. And some of that is that, you know, in these drawings with these figures, the tiny naked women are bathing in something that appears to be green. Now, certainly there are blue inks and green inks. So it purposely made green. And she was thinking like, is this some kind of herbal soak for some kind of uh remedy on your more fringy thoughts? Could this be a, a recipe or directions for the fountain of youth, right? There's something mystical to it. And, more practically towards the back of the book she's noticed is that there's recipes as we said recipes on how to cut up or prepare these plants how to cook them and what they'll do for you and the different combinations and so overall to her it it just yeah it's generally a herbal medical book but another fascinating thing as she points out again she affirms this is that looking at it closely there don't appear to be any scrape marks now as i mentioned at the top of the show when a scribe or somebody who, uh, like a monk who's transcribing a book or creating an illuminated manuscript, because of the way that vellum is so durable that if you made a mistake with ink, you don't throw the whole thing out. That's hours and hours of work. What you could do is wait till it dries. Then you take a knife and you can scrape that. And it's funny, like my, my dad was a commercial artist and he would show me how to do that with an x blade. You can do that to this right. day on right. artificial vellum, you know. You can use that durability of an animal skin to its advantage and just kind of start over. Well, that's not seen here. So what does that say about the book? Well, I think it says two things. One is that this person had either prepared notes on the side before they actually created this master volume of knowledge or knew it so well by heart that they were a genius and they just laid it down, came flowing right out of them, or it points to a hoax because You don't need to make corrections if you're making this all up. You know what I'm saying? Like, who's going to catch you? Yeah. It's all gibberish. Yeah. So those are the two lines of thought when people say like, well, there doesn't seem to be many do-overs with this thing.
0: But still, it, it occurs to me that even if you're making it all up, there's going to be whoever made it obviously is someone who's very much interested in control and perfectionism. Yes. You would think that there would be a mistake or something that they would want to fix or something that wasn't right, and you don't see that in there. So, like, to your point, yeah, they either had it pre-written or practiced out or written out somewhere else, and then they Mm -hmm. copied it into this. Another thing that they might have been doing, which I didn't really hear mentioned in our research, but, you know, it occurs to me, if they had an endless supply of vellum, it could have been that when they made a mistake, rather than erase it or fix it, they tossed that piece out and started again. Which, can you imagine? I mean, it's already a huge commitment to make this. Can you imagine getting three quarters of the way done with one of the folios and and (laughs) saying, oops, yeah," and then balling (laughs) it up and throwing it in the the trash can?
2: You know, even of, of mediocre quality, kind of expensive after a while. Yeah. And that's another point of the book is that this is not cheap to make. And I'm not sure how it was bound, but from what I know about bifolios, which is a sheet folded in half to create two pages or these bound choirs, is that if you make a mistake on one, uh, you might be throwing out sheets, leaves, further on down the book. Yeah. So it could be a very costly and time-consuming mistake to do that. But in any case, it's quite an amazing feat. Like I said, even if you were copying this from notes that you had on the side and a rough draft and you were just making a final copy we all make mistakes how many times have we done that it's like you just copy something wrong you you looked over maybe you spilled some ink the cat things the cat just cat happen it. yeah when you right when you're trying to be that careful and this thing's 270 pages at least at the time of being extremely careful so it's just quite an amazing human feat to begin with This is Justin in Illinois, and when I'm not reenacting the Lion King with my beautiful cat, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now, let's get back to the show. So were there any names, any clues at all to the
0: authorship of the Voynich manuscript found within its pages? Well, that, of course, is the thing that they're going to do. They're trying to figure out who could have possibly written this, and it was Wilfred Voynich himself, who was the first guy that actually discovered a clue leading to the anonymous author. He was making uh, reprographs or photographic copies of the original manuscript. And when he did that, he noticed on one of the photographs that he could see something that was invisible prior to that to the naked eye. So all the people that had been looking at it over the years, they couldn't see this. But once he started photocopying it, it came out. And it looked like something had been written on the first page, but it was later scratched off from the original parchment, which is something that Forrest has already talked about. So this was a common technique, this scratching things off or erasing a mistake, and as we've been saying, there's not any mistakes in the body of the manuscript itself, but that's why this was such an unusual thing to find on the first page. So later, when people were able to take a look at this under ultraviolet light, they can see clearly that there are letters appearing in what looks like a scratched-off area, and it has a name. Yes, and that name
2: was Jacobus Tepenich. Those appear to be the unseen words there, or the unseen name. Now, Tepanich, he was a traveling doctor in the early 17th century, and he was also an expert in medicinal plants, and he was famous in Europe for his cures. So in 1608, Emperor Rudolf II, who was also the Holy Roman Emperor at the time, uh, previous to that, he was King of Hungary and Croatia, as ruling as Rudolf I, that was his title. Also King of Bohemia, Archduke of Austria, and one of the famous Habsburgs from that dynasty. Well, what was interesting about Rudolf II is that he had an intense interest in the occult arts and learning, and that actually helped spur what would be called the Scientific Revolution. And Rudolf II summoned Tepenech to Prague for one of his famous cures. Oh, and here's another thing. Rudolf II was the predecessor to Emperor Matthias, his younger brother, who stripped him of power in 1611. That is Emperor Matthias stripping Rudolf II of power in 1611. And Rudolf II was kind of an ineffectual ruler, uh, history has judged. But you
0: remember Emperor Matthias? I do. His name's familiar. Well, I there you go. Remember, am I right? Well,
2: you, we should, but we do such a uh, brain cash info dump <laughs> after we're done with these shows. Emperor Matthias was from our Elizabeth Bathory story. Ah,
0: he's the one who, uh,
2: yeah, he wanted her dead and gone, and possibly wanted to acquire her lands and wealth.
0: Okay, so when when Rudolph was stripped of his power, it was by the same guy who wanted Bathory dead exactly that's the long and short of it yeah everything's connected once again and in this case rudolph the first and rudolph the second are the same guy just at different periods of ruling
2: yeah you have a different title it's like james the first and james the sixth or fifth or whatever it's the same guy depending on uh, the lineage there you take on a different title depending on what you're ruling and when okay Oh, I all hope right. that was about as distilled and incorrect as I can make it, but I think that's generally in the ballpark. There. But the so overall point
0: title. is, it's the same guy in in our, in our story here. We're talking yeah. about one Rudolph.
2: Yeah, Rudolph and he is well known in the circles of uh, alchemy studies because he had such an interest and he had a lot of money at the time to buy up all these books. And he was a great patron of people, well, maybe like the Count of St. Germain. You know, he was funding studies. I don't think he did any studies himself, but he had a great collection of this stuff. He, he was
0: uh, very much interested in it, believed in it. But on top of that, he, he had some problems, right? He was, he was depressed. He had issues. So he's, he's calling Tepanich in to help him feel a little bit better.
2: Yeah, exactly. Like I said, Tepanich was famous for uh, as much doctoring as could be done during the time, and I'm sure some of these herbal cures actually had some benefits. So he was very well known in the day, and that's why Rudolf II summoned him to court, because he did uh, suffer from what was called uh, melancholia back then, and nowadays we probably just call it chronic depression. Sure. Well, Tepanich, his actual name was Jakub Horschitsky, Oh, okay. Yeah. Don't separate that out. Don't pull a thread on that one. Okay. <laughs> okay <I don't> <laughs> yeah. All right. And, uh, you'll see, I, I believe it's checked there. Yeah. Well, in Latin, his name would be Jacobus Sanapius. Ah. And everybody had a Latin name back then, it seems, especially if you were in academia, because that's how you were referred to. And he would be later granted the title Z-Tepanich or Z-Tepanich, meaning of Tepanich, of a location. Okay. No, town or village. Okay. Well, he was a Bohemian pharmacist, and he became the personal doctor to Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II. He was, he was that good. Well, here's another interesting aside. His Latinized name uh, is a translation of his family name, which means mustard in Czech. <laughs> so ah, that's okay. that's synapius uh, or synapus in Latin. There you go. So it's was Colonel Mustard in the library with the candlestick, except here it's with his potions at... Uh, rudolph ii's
0: court the potions are are snake oil at this point a little bit right no, well, i mean they I, don't know what they're there's
2: i'm not going to say that you know why okay. because like i said earlier on uh people have found a lot of relief with herbal cures today and it seems a lot of that knowledge was lost so i would find a lot of people would argue with you that you know holistic cures yes uh, some western medicine of course uh, probably most of it will say be cautious with that, but there's a lot of people nowadays who look to herbal remedies and believe These statements them. have not been evaluated by the FDA. No, don't go out and uh, <laughs> cure yourself or or start taking supplements you find at the store based on any of this, but like I said, back in the day, that's all you got. There's no squib, there's no Eli Lilly making pharmaceuticals. You had a guy crushing up herbs uh, yeah. who hopefully knew what he was doing and, you know, out of... Uh, the people that were known in Europe for doing this, Tepanich was one of the more famous ones, and he gained favor with the emperor. Well, Wilfred Voynich, he was the one, as we just said, who saw Jakub's
0: name and his title at the bottom of the first page on the Voynich manuscript. Yeah, and he didn't, at the time, he didn't have an ultraviolet light, so he didn't, he had to resort to other methods to get it to be more visible or try to, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. He tried chemicals uh, to make the name clearer, didn't really seem to work, but what he could kind of make out, it seems, was faint lettering that read out as Jacobus Sinapius, so that's the Latin name. And later on, many years later, of course, Ultraviolet Light reveals this name to be correct, and it's been compared with other samples of Jacob's signature. So in that case, he's kind of the second person, officially, I think, to have owned the Voynich manuscript after emperor rudolph because as we'll see here in a second there are some letters that were found with it the, the manuscript but some of the information in there is hearsay so they're going with teppanich as being uh, one of the guys who at least had the manuscript in his possession well as we said about rudolph's cures or the ones administered to him maybe it was the alcohol going into the tin cures yeah. that made him feel better Whatever it was in there, it seemed to work. At least Rudolf thought so. So he then admitted Tepinich to noble status and appointed him to the title of Imperial Chief Distiller. But here's a question. If Tepanich was the author, if this was his manual of herbal remedies, why would he go to that much trouble to encode them if they're just herbal remedies? So one person that may have an answer as to why this thing was kept so secret, why this manual needed to be encoded was, at least as of 2010, when the documentary came out that we've been mentioning here, Kevin Rep was the curator of the Beinecke Library's manuscript collection.
0: So wh- what did he have to say about why would you need to make this thing secret? I thought this was pretty fascinating, but one of the, and we've alluded to this a little bit earlier in the show, but the reality was that this information, having this kind of information that was considered arcane and somewhat secret could get you in trouble with the church. So it's... Like everything
2: else back then. Yeah, like everything
0: else. So it was plausible that if you came up with these solutions, no matter how great they were medically, that would help people with certain types of ailments, that you would want to conceal what you had discovered. So there's this idea that the book itself was allegorical illustrations to conceal secret solutions to different various ailments and that would explain why it would be encoded this is what's weird about it and why it's kind of mysterious some of the drawings are very
2: well they're representative of plants that are known but just a few most of the plants represented in the book are not known they're kind of fantastical so it looks like it could be science fiction and if it's allegorical like is it so far out that the person reading it is not going to know what's going on with the book. Or if they knew what the text
0: was, would they get it? And one of the things that Rep noted in that documentary was that the style of the botanical illustrations would not necessarily be consistent with the time period during which Tepanich was alive and would have theoretically created it. Right. It was artwork out of time. So it doesn't necessarily match up that he would have been the author of it because he would have been drawing much more realistic botanicals than the ones that are featured in the Voynich manuscript, which are of a, a less sophisticated style. However, that style was appropriate for maybe one or 200 years earlier. It, right. doesn't, it doesn't line up.
2: And it's not known uh, that authors of these types of manuals in the 16 and 1700s would look to earlier styles from 100 or 200 years ago to copy. They would just be doing the more realistic styles. I think even by the 1500s, the styles of artwork in these types of herbal manuals was getting much more realistic and more closely associated to real plants that you could actually study. So that style was really antiquated by the 16 and 1700s and you wouldn't have gone back to duplicate that it'd be like using a it'd be like drawing up a, a medical manual today and using medieval illustrations
0: right so what this points to is like if you go back and you and you take a look at the big picture and the fact that tepanech's name is at the front of the book and then you you put all this together it just doesn't seem likely that he was the author of the book and here's the other nail in the coffin on that theory it turns out that there are a lot of books that he had in his collection, and analysis of these other books that he had over the years, they found his name written in the front of all of them in pretty much exactly the same way. So it was just him signing a book and saying, This book is mine, it's part of my collection. Right, right. And so that rules out the idea of him being the author. So when we look further into this, How do we get down to who maybe the first owner of the Voynich Manuscript might have been before, even before Tepanich?
2: Right. Well, it only goes so far. So, uh, you know, the chain of custody on this thing, at least in written records, again, goes a little further back in time than that, but not a whole lot. So it's early history. We just don't know. But the first confirmed owner now, this is, of course, uh, can be found, and more details and, and sources can be found if you do go search the the wiki entry. And I wanted to make a point here. This is something that does kind of conflict with the documentary, The Voyage Code, The World's Most Mysterious Manuscript, in that it doesn't contradict it, but they don't mention this next fellow's name, Georg Barish. And Georg Berish was an obscure alchemist from Prague at the time. And he thought this thing was just as puzzling when he when he owned it, when it was in his possession. He called it kind of a sphinx, and this thing was like taking up useless room in his library. Because what's the point of a book you can't read? Yeah. But he was he was a an alchemist, and of course uh, interested in these kinds of subjects here. And he thought he may have known somebody who could possibly have decoded it. Very very smart fellow. Again. Athanasius Kircher. So Georg Berish knew him and I think was friends with him, maybe studied under him. And again, Athanasius was a Jesuit scholar. And at the time he was in the Collegio Romano, the, the Roman college. And I believe, if I'm correct here, the dating of that first cover that we talked about, uh, they thought there was a wooden cover on the book. Then there was a new goatskin cover put onto it. That can be dated back to its possession or at least at the location of the Collegio Romano. So Kircher, it seems, had published an Egyptian dictionary or a Coptic Egyptian dictionary, and he was really good with languages. And Kircher, maybe a little boastful, maybe, but he had claimed to decipher the Egyptian hieroglyphs. So Barish thought like, well, this is the dude, you know, they look maybe hieroglyphic using the adjectival form of that. If, if anybody's going to know, it could be this genius here. So two times he sent copies of, uh, you know, the sample script to Kircher in Rome, and well, while he was at the college there. And he just said, hey, are there any clues? Can you point me in any direction to a deciphering this thing? And that letter apparently dated 1639 is one of, or maybe the earliest mention of this manuscript that has been found to date, and uh, at least the earliest mention of it. So we don't know if Kircher actually did any deciphering work on it. The follow-up response is not known, but he apparently did uh, have a lot of interest in the book, and he tried to get a copy of it from Berish. Who didn't really want to give up the book? You know, things got lost in the mail, I'm sure, back then, pretty easily. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that everybody who's owned it, it's like, again, it's the singing frog. It's the Michigan J frog. This thing could be worth everything or nothing, but you got to find out. Everybody wants to know. So they don't really want to part with it easily. So he kind of refused. And it wasn't until Barish died and the manuscript passed to his good friend, Jan Marek Marcy, also known as Johannes Marcus Marcy, who was then the rector of the Charles University in Prague. So very smart guy. All these guys are near genius level, very well-educated men. So it's being passed around these higher circles or the, the uppermost circles of academia. And it was Marcy who sent the book to Kircher his longtime friend and correspondent. And also he studied under Kircher. So it was his teacher at some point. So he actually was the one who did send the book to him. And in that book, in the manuscript there, the Voynich manuscript, there was a letter dated, uh, it's either from 1665 or 1666. It was found on the inside cover of the book. I believe when Voynich got the book, that letter was still in there. So it accompanies the manuscript and it's the letter where Johannes Marcus, asks Kircher to decipher it if he can. And there's also a claim in there that the book once belonged to Emperor Rudolf II, who paid 600 gold ducats for it. So we, at least we have a price.
0: That's our Rudolf from before.
2: Yeah, exactly. Correct. Rudolf, who we just mentioned, Datton actually names a price and a claim that he was the one who actually bought it. And Two uh, kilograms of gold, 600
0: ducats, I guess. That's, yeah, not yeah.
2: too shabby. Not too I mean, bad. it's, a, again, not a, not a cheapo book.
0: That money that was paid for the book will come into play later with theories about why it may have been written by Rudolf.
2: Well, yeah, exactly. Because uh, again, somebody thought this, well, everybody thought this thing was valuable at least. And here is uh, written proof at least of a change of hands. And so it was Jacobus de Tepanich who... Actually, ended up in possession with it after Rudolf. And it's thought that uh, Rudolf, when he died, owed a great deal of money to everybody because he spent all his money on these magical books and objects. And in collecting the debts owed to Tepanich by Rudolf II, he got this book as at least some payment for Our payment uh, for from what he was his owed.
0: estate. So, if we were to sum up the chain of custody here that we're aware of, Yes. and we were to go back to the first person that we know of, we would go back to Georg. Barrish, who later went on to build the Mobile and many other fabulous cars George, for Hollywood. Oh, that's
2: George Barris. Oh, you. sorry, sorry. I'm yeah. sorry, I got
0: confused. Yeah, the Batmobile, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> so, so we go back to him first. He has the book. He sends a sample of it to Kircher. Yes. Kircher asked for a copy of the book. Uh, that's Athanasius Kircher, who was the yeah, first he person wants... mentioned in the documentary. Barish is not, but uh, Athanasius is. Yes, he's
2: mentioned, but not as the first person where there's documentation. Here's what's special about Georg, apparently, is that that letter that he sent to Kircher from 1639 is the first written mention of the manuscript that can be found in print. That's right.
0: why it's important. That's our earliest reference to the manuscript that's outside of the manuscript itself.
2: As you'll see here as it's kind of leading, is that the, the manuscript is probably earlier than that time. Right.
0: But or we don't have any other be, evidence of it as of right now. Right. It, no reference to it in written paper. So Kirscher wanted it, but Berish wouldn't send it to him. But then Berish died and left it to his friend, Johannes Marcus Marcy,
2: because there's a letter from 1665. Right. And that's the letter that was found, uh, I believe, in addition uh, to the manuscript. So that was kind of tucked in the, uh, in the cover
0: there. And that's another letter, yes, yeah, sent to his friend and teacher, Athanasius Kircher, in Rome. And the letter also is the, how we know that Rudolf had paid 600 ducats for it at one point.
2: Yeah, but that's that's hearsay. You know, there's yeah. no bill of sale. Really, that's like somebody saying, like, "Hey, I heard uh, the old uh, the old king there bought it for six hundred uh, ducats. Pretty pricey, right?" Okay. that's that was relayed to another friend uh, that appears in the letter. So again, that officially that can't be docked as the first person to have bought it. But it ever. also
0: the letter also indicates that when Rudolph II died, just a few years after Tepinet showed up and gave him some potions. <laughs> <laughs> Rudolf well. II passed away and owed Tepanich money, and that's when Tepanech got the book. So that's how yeah. the book has gone down through those various people, based on these letters and how we're piecing together the history of it. And I keep calling it a book, but I, I suppose manuscript is better. It is a book. Yeah. yeah. Manuscript just means handwritten book. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, manu,
2: manu, hand script. There you go. Yeah, so it hasn't passed to a lot of people. Right. And so it's a little tenuous, but uh, thank goodness there's not a huge cast of characters who own this thing. There's a few people after that, but basically Kircher seemed to be in his possession for quite a long time after that. But apparently two of these guys thought that Athanasius Kircher was the guy to decipher this, if anybody could, because he, he was considered a universal scientist and here's a quote, believed to have understood all languages in the world. Now, I'm not sure how that's possible, but uh, he, he was good with languages. <laughs> At least he studied them. And Marcy was also a physician of note. He was the official physician to the Holy Roman emperors. And did you know that Marcy has a crater named after him on the far side of the moon? Oh,
0: that's cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, not too bad. Eh? But how can we know if it's on the far side? They could just well, say somebody. It's-
2: I, I would ask NASA. They're, they're just right. going to tell you it's there. Uh, right. Boy, the, the far side of the moon is a
0: whole other series of shows we're thinking about. You generally have to be a pretty smart person to get a crater named after you anywhere on the moon. I
2: exactly, because you have uh, smart, very smart people naming these craters. They're not going <laughs> to pick like, hey, how about Fred down the street here? He's yeah, a good neighbor neighbor. Well, Fred makes a comeback. Well, Kircher, again, he's no slouch, and uh, he's made major contributions to academia in the fields of religion, comparative religion, geology, medicine. Uh, he's been compared to Leonardo da Vinci, for his uh, huge range of interests, and he was titled, uh, as we said, Master of 100 Arts. I think maybe I mentioned this before, is that uh, he claimed to have deciphered the hieroglyphic writing of ancient Egyptian language, but most of his assumptions were later found to be incorrect. Well, in any case, there is another clue in this letter from Johannes Marcus Marcy, Marcy to Athanasius Kircher as to the manuscript's possible author. Because Marcy writes that the author was, or at least he thought, was Rogerium
0: Baconum, or Rogerius Baconus, his Latin name, or simply just Roger Bacon. So here we go again with the Bacons. We got Sir Francis Bacon writing Shakespeare, now we have Roger Bacon writing the Voynich Manuscript, and all that's left to do is make a connection between the two of them and Kevin Bacon. And maybe a BLT. Which,
2: oh, boy, that sounds really good right now. It does, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> well, Roger Bacon is no- another one of those polymath geniuses, and he is known or was known by the scholarly title Dr. Mirabilis or mm. the Miracle Doctor. Boy, that's, wasn't that a great uh, superhero name? Yeah, it's amazing. Well, Bacon was a famous English Franciscan friar and philosopher who lived around uh, 1219 or 1220 to around 1292. So uh, previous generations, you could say. And he was known for being one of the earliest advocates of Aristotelian or Alhazen inspired modern scientific methods. So these guys are the pioneers, the forefathers of scientific methodology Essentially, he was all about the study of nature through empiricism, and he was also famous in the early modern era for being a wizard, and you're going to love this. He also supposedly possessed a mechanical or necromantic brazen head. Oh my God. You know what those, you know
0: what, I one of those know are? I didn't know what this was until we started doing this. This thing is pretty amazing. If you, if you actually, if you look up the brazen head on Wikipedia, there's a picture of it that's super frightening. We'll have it with this show, so you may have seen it. But Roger Bacon's assistant Miles is confronted by the brazen head in a 1905 (laughs) retelling of the story. But the brazen head was a brass or bronze automaton, which we've already talked about a little bit in this episode. And uh, Roger Bacon, it specifically says that he had one, and it's part of the reason that he had developed a reputation as a wizard.
2: Yeah, he was quite an amazing guy. Again, probably an excellent dinner guest companion to
0: to talk to, or at least the head was,
2: because you could ask it questions and it would answer.
0: Yeah. So it was supposed to be able to answer any question you put to it, although it was sometimes apparently restricted to a yes or no answers.
2: Well, yeah, if you didn't know, it's like, uh, no, let's just go with no. And you, you go do the research on that. Uh, (laughs) But it was, yeah, either, right. Either mechanical, like the remember the mechanical chess playing automaton. Yes. Uh, didn't it turn out there was a chess expert underneath him? Yeah,
0: the guy was underneath. So okay. it's really well, just about teaching him how to move the robot arms to move. Well,
2: it, this he's... could be old Raj Bacon just throwing his voice. Who knows? <laughs> uh, the answer no. <laughs> like, well, anyway, like a lot of these guys, maybe most of them, they got in trouble with the church from time to time. Uh, Bacon did for his work uh, throughout his life. Because of this interest in empiricism and gaining knowledge through experiments, But he's also made advances, especially in optics. That's another field that a lot of these guys are experimenting with, it seems, optics. And here it's important because, well, one, Roger Bacon got it added, it seems, to the medieval uh, university curriculum, which is a big deal. And uh, his optics study came up with an explanation for rainbows.
0: So that's pretty cool. So that means he was experimenting with uh, prisms or prismatic light, which is pretty fascinating and trying and getting to the bottom of that, which was, you know. Talk about ahead of your
2: time. I think earlier light was thought to just have different shades if there were different colors, not actually all the colors being embodied in white light. Crappy explanation here, but I'm on the, I'm on the spot. Well, one <laughs> thing that's interesting about Roger Bacon in regards to the Voynich manuscript is that he was known, as we said, to experiment with optics and uh, extreme magnification with magnifying glasses. And in the Voynich manuscript, one thing that's noted about the drawings is that they don't seem to relay to plants that we know or in a style or or actual representation of plants, but they do seem like they could be very close up looks at cellular structure of certain plants because of the style. And it's like, they, again, what are we looking at here? We know it's a plant, but where is this plant? What part of the plant are we looking at? So one theory is that the pictures in the Voynich manuscript are actually drawings of things seen only with very high magnification. And again, trying not to conflict with church doctrine, Bacon may have
0: wanted to encode these findings or what he what he saw in an encrypted manuscript. What's interesting about this idea is that if he figured out how to use glass to magnify something, and then he's drawing what he's seeing under the magnification, and it does look, a lot of them look like if you were to take a basic magnifying glass and hold it mm-hmm. up close to a a leaf in the forest or something, Yeah, and, and that's what the drawing looks like. But then the drawing itself looks more like a plant than a leaf. So maybe yeah. it was an effort to convey what he was seeing under magnification, but to conceal how he acquired what that image would look like, Right. but also protect and preserve the knowledge that he gained from using the magnification without tipping his hand to the church about it. Yeah, exactly. Again, so many of these guys got in some real big trouble for... Yeah, he was uh, imprisoned several times.
2: Yeah. Well, you didn't want to come out with new knowledge. That was very dangerous. And you also don't want to pull the thread, let's say, on God's creation too much. And that's another phrase I use a lot. But pulling the thread, is like, don't look at this too closely. Yeah. (laughs) Literally with magnifying glasses. Because let's just leave it... Again, God did it. That's it. Leave it alone. Uh, It doesn't need to be questioned. The stars and the sun go around the earth that we can obviously see stop coming up with new ideas because they didn't want anything to conflict with their doctrine. So scientists do this all the time. And the early every scientist does. You you look through uh, some kind of optical aid, like a magnifying glass or microscope, and you sketch out what you see and you make notes about it. It is so ingrained into the scientific method. And as we said before, these guys were at the forefront of the scientific method here. But Roger Bacon, uh, again, he's a likely candidate because he was interested in this kind of stuff. He was very smart, genius level, was kind of a character. And again, maybe some of the more uh, magical seeming discoveries he made or experiments would need to be encoded. So is that time frame accurate? It's, It's an ancient book of knowledge that's secret and encoded. And he's a likely candidate, but he's not the only one.
0: I'm Ellen, and when I'm not giving a rabies vaccine to a werewolf, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now back to the show.
2: So now we're kind of into the gallery here of likely suspects for the author of the Voynich manuscript,
0: either in earnest or in fraud. All right, so for those of you making your list at home, and I'm, I'm making my list here too, oh. put down potential author Roger Bacon. The brazen head wizard Mm. so we can keep track of these
2: things. Well, speaking of your list of likely suspects, we're going to take a little time now and look at two of the, let's say the most likely suspects for a lot of researchers, at least for the possible authorship of the Voynich manuscript, again, either earnestly or let's say less than earnestly maybe written for something that could be easily sold to a rich person. And two of these characters that are thought to have been very likely suspects to be
0: the more hoaxing authors of the Voynich manuscript are Edward Kelly and John D. Kelly and D are tied up together, and it's really interesting. Everybody's heard of John D. Edward Kelly. I think maybe John D. Experts have heard of, but maybe not as much as John D. And when I say everyone's heard of John D., that's probably not true either. But <laughs> <laughs> well, if but you do this kind of study, more, yeah, yeah, he's a little more recognized. So Edward Kelly or simply Kelly was also known as Edward Talbot and he was born in Worcester in August of 1555 and died in 1597 or 1598. I know I didn't say it right. No, no, I wait, wait. You. Say, You're say about it. to say something. Go you, ahead.
2: You you should hear Scott do, do your uh well it's more of I guess the British pronunciation but when you do it it sounds Boston. So so say the uh say the other way.
0: Uh, Worcester Worcester, that's how I would say it. Worcester, Worcester. Worcester, He was born in Worcester. (laughs) So (laughs) Kelly, uh, I'm going to move on from this. Kelly was an English occultist who started off working as an amanuensis, or what would today be called a scribe or secretary in his early years. But later, he became more known for being the partner to John Dee in their work investigating magic spirits and communication with angelic beings and occultism. He was also thought of as a bit of a charlatan by some historians. Well, probably a lot of historians, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, this is part of why I'm fascinated with him. He, there's very much a catch-me-if-you-can vibe with Edward Kelly, in Little my bit. opinion. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah. Now, John Dee, who was English and Welsh, uh, we actually mentioned him way back in our Oak Island series, back when we were first starting out, because some think he might have had a connection to what was hidden there. Possibly some arcane, that's the word of the day for mm, this series. I do like or it. Or sacred knowledge that he uh, had come across, so that he might have buried on Oak Island. Dee's uncle was Robert Dudley, the first Earl of Leicester. And there was, I believe, a rumor that while Dudley was imprisoned in the Tower of London at the same time, as his close childhood friend, future Queen Elizabeth I, they may have actually conceived Sir Francis Bacon.
2: Wow. Yeah, I know. I, I That blew me away when I thought about that again. There's another connection.
0: Yeah, that's another everything is connected moment and <laughs> a possible connection to Oak Island. See, all these, all our stories tie together yeah, somehow. Everything EIC, is connected. see. Everything is connected.
2: There you go. EIC.
0: That's our next shirt.
2: It is fascinating, though, because... These are really tight circles of
0: people, and, and it's all having to do with secret knowledge. And yeah, there you go. And venomous arcana. Yeah. People wonder what that stands for on our logo. Well, John D. lived from uh, July 1527 to 1608 or nine, and he is most famous for being one of the most learned men of his time. A skilled astronomer, navigator, mathematician, occultist philosopher— and magus or astrologer, an occasional tutor and advisor to Queen Elizabeth I. Dee was also into divination, sorcery, hermetic philosophy, and alchemy, so he was closely aligned with the interests with Edward Kelly, whom he relied upon heavily for what he thought was spirit communication. So these two were just peas in a pod. Oh, they yeah. They could have had an amazing podcast, actually. Except for, they. I think they argued a lot, as we'll see. Right, again, perfect for a podcast. All right, listen to this quote from Wikipedia about John D. It's pretty interesting. He devoted much time and effort in the last 30 years or so of his life to attempting to commune with angels in order to learn the universal language of creation and bring about the pre-apocalyptic unity of mankind. Dee did not draw distinctions between his mathematical research and his investigations into hermetic magic, angel summoning, and divination. Instead, he considered all of his activities to constitute different facets of the same quest—the search for a transcendent understanding of the divine forms which underlie the visible world, which Dee called Pure verities.
2: Yeah, to him, he was on a sacred, divine quest for knowledge because he believed this could heal the world. Supposedly,
0: well, to him, I mean, it's, a, it's a little <laughs> bit of you know, give your money to God. Here's my address. Well,
2: he's not asking for money except from the uh, yeah for, for wealthy noble patrons. He's not on uh, yeah, TV, yeah.
0: you know, asking well,
2: for money. But no, he he did seem to be, really believe in his quest for knowledge, and that he thought that the messages from angelic beings from the heavenly realms. Would give him this knowledge and and mankind the knowledge to heal ourselves and you know heal the rifts that were occurring in his time every time has rifts we've got you don't never get away from rifts, so he thought this was the way to do it because we're all just uh butting heads here and we're not getting anywhere so that was his quest that there was uh to those that were pure in their quest for the seeking of knowledge they would be granted this wisdom by the angels. And, you know, Dee had also collected a ton of books over the years, and he had one of the largest libraries in England. So, you know, a possible in with Dee for this Edward Kelly claiming to provide Dee access to a mysterious book of secret knowledge as well as Kelly's own claimed spirit mediumship, that must be really appealing to Dee.
0: Or so Kelly thought. Kelly had also declared that he was an alchemist who had knowledge of one of the main secret feats of alchemy, turning base metals into gold. And he also claimed he had access to another mystical end product of alchemy, the Philosopher's Stone. But John Dee, it seemed, was more interested in Kelly's self-proclaimed ability to summon and communicate with spirits, or as they called them then, angels. Kelly did this by using a mirror, or what was called a shoe stone. Now, not much is known about Edward Kelly's early years, but he was a well-educated man, knowing Latin and perhaps some Greek, and he may have studied at Oxford under the name Edward Talbot in his youth. He usually wore a hat because it was thought from some contemporary accounts that he'd had his ear lopped off or cropped as a punishment. Or, or maybe both ears, yeah. Yeah, or maybe both ears, and that he'd been pilloried in Lancaster for counterfeiting or forgery. This note adds to the speculation that Kelly may have forged... The Voynich manuscript. Sometime after this, it was reported that Kelly had gained favor with Emperor Rudolf II. So there again, we've got another connection, possibly, to the manuscript, and an idea is starting to form there that you Mm -hmm. you guys are probably latching onto, but we'll get further on that in a minute. That tells you a little bit about his past, having his ear cut off or Or lopped off, or both of them. One of the things that the documentary mentioned that we keep referring to was that he tried to conceal this for the rest of his life with long hair. So it's an embarrassing situation.
2: And I think that was the point of the punishment. People instantly know, like, oh, did something bad. I, you know, like you. Yeah. And in his case, yeah, his case, forgery. But what you mentioned to uh, amanuensis. He was trained to be good at taking notes and writing and sketching, and he was actually quite good at that, as uh, was noted in these journals, yeah.
0: Again, this reminds me of Frank Abagnale, who <laughs> Catch Me If You Can was based on, the, it's the forgery, you're known for yeah, forgery, yeah. but you're also fairly intelligent, you're able to convince people of high status to believe in what you're doing, right. regardless of how well-founded it is. Did he ever have a job in, uh, because yeah, if you see in the movie, like he's pretty
2: clever about lifting logos from letterheads and and faking documents. My point here is that Kelly, yeah, he was trained in kind of like being a scribe. And at one point, I believe in London, he was thought to have worked as a notary that they, like today it was a pretty serious job. You had to testify to documents that you were witnessing being signed or agreements. And so if you're caught forging or fudging these kind of things, there goes that career. You kind of threw that out yeah. the window. So I'm sure it was very embarrassing to him. And and yeah, it's like immediately people want to know what you were you know, fiddling around with. And for Kelly, it, it required then a, a change of careers.
0: Yeah. And Abignell did not know. The answer to that yeah. question is no. He never had a job of that type. He just started out pretty young. I think his first con was running a con against his dad using his credit card, mm. buying things and getting cash back. And then he started overdrafting with checks right, and that right. sort of thing. But he was an expert, I would say, still a scribe in a way. He, yeah. It's it's a similar skill set, but no, it was not a professional I see. thing for him. Mm-hmm. But they both seem to have the gift of charisma, I would say, and their ability to get people to follow along, to be Pied Pipers. Right. There is a lot of that with Kelly. So Kelly actually first contacted John Dee in 1582, and he convinced Dee that he had the ability to regularly communicate with angels, which Dee had been previously trying to do with other mediums, but with very little luck. Dee's goal with this angelic knowledge and the use of alchemy would, quote, heal the rift of Christendom. For seven years, the two men's lives would be closely linked with their constant seances, occult investigations, and what they called spiritual conferences. Some would say Dee worked Kelly so hard in this mediumship that Kelly went a little nuts or at least was exhausted by the constant practice. Well, you can
2: imagine if somebody's got a talent, it's like, hey, hey, can you, can you ring up the angels again? It's like, God, I just did that. Can we just take a break? It's like, no, no, I, I got a question again. So he, he believed that Kelly was
0: really effective, and he just seems like he wouldn't leave him alone. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like me... Forcing you to continuously record our show. Absolutely. Pretty (laughs) closely, yeah. There's another story of Edward Kelly claiming to have a magical book of secret knowledge in his possession, which may further add to the suspicions that he was the unknown author of the Voynich manuscript. Now, this time it was called the Book of Dunstan, which was a mystical book on alchemy that Kelly claimed he was led to, along with another man named John Blokely, by some sort of, quote, spiritual creature, end quote, on Norfolk Hill. Kelly came forward with the book of Dunstan about a year after meeting John Dee, and along with the book had some sort of red powder, which he believed in combination with the secret knowledge in the book to make a preparation, would allow him to transmute base metals into gold. Kelly would go on to supposedly demonstrate this ability several times in the years following his claim. So that's the the holy grail of alchemy right there it's just to turn yeah. whatever metal you want into gold. And yeah,
2: unless you uh yeah, you know, sleight of hand get uh, get a little nugget out like
0: there there you go. There you go which he was accused of doing at least in that documentary they mentioned that he may have done that where he would he would be locked in a room I think that was with Rudolph the yeah. 2nd, right? He's yeah. locked in the room and the king's men were outside the door and they put him in there with, you know, a block of lead or something and said, don't come out till you have gold. And he, sure enough, he came out with a tiny nugget that mm-hmm. I don't particularly want to know where he had hidden. But um, <laughs> well. so, who knows how thoroughly they searched him before he went in there. You gold would think if gold. he came out with a tiny nugget, they would be like, well, that was probably just in his armpit, you know, or something.
2: Uh, it know. depends on how clever the, uh, the presentation is. You know, Penn and Teller will tell you, you know, it's the show, it's the diversion. You don't know back then what the deal was. I'm not saying that he actually produced gold, but a lot of smart men of the era, uh, Isaac Newton uh, himself, thought there was something to alchemy. And I want to make a note here that that's not the be-all and end-all of alchemy is just to make gold. It's a spiritual transmutation as well, that it's an enlightenment, a quickening of the person. So that's one of the things you can do if you end up with a philosopher's stone and, and, and it may grant a modicum of immortality or something like that, uh, health benefits, but it's not the be all end all. That's all people seem to think about nowadays is like, oh, alchemy, you're trying to make gold out of lead, right? And it's like, well, that's one of the things that is possibly an outcome of this. But really the ideal is to attain spiritual
0: and uh, uh, intellectual enlightenment. So John Dee and Edward Kelly, along with their families, left England in 1583, headed for Central Europe, where Dee had hoped to receive patronage from Emperor Rudolf II, good old Rudy, who you're talking about, (laughs) in Prague, or King Stefan in Poland, but he failed to receive sponsorship or a court appointment from either. Dee and Kelly had a rocky relationship during their time in Europe, as Kelly was more interested in alchemy and Dee more interested in angelic communication. Can you just imagine being around for an argument between these two about what they needed to focus on? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's fascinating. uh, Two learned men going at
2: it about things that most people today would scoff at.
0: Yeah, see, these are the guys I want Bill and Ted to bring back and take to the mall. And, uh, you know, in those scenes with... uh, So crates. They can argue with so crates. Yeah, but, uh, right. <laughs> right. Well, as, as stated by Dee in his journals, Kelly was actually quite good at writing or lettering and sketching notes from their seance investigations, and was at first dedicated to researching alchemy and spiritualism with Dee. But as time went on, and the grueling constant spirit medium sessions continued at Dee's urging, Kelly wanted to quit. And in 1587, perhaps as a way of getting Dee to also want to quit, Kelly told Dee that the angels had ordered them to share everything between them, which included their wives. Woo! So the angels ordered a wife swap. This Mm. got Dee to quit the spirit communication sessions, but they apparently did end up wife swapping, and nine months later, Dee's wife gave birth to a son, which was rumored to may have been Kelly's. So... Timing's a little suspicious. Kelly had traveled from Prague to meet up with Dee in 1596 in the town of Trebonia in what is now the Czech Republic to continue their experiments. But by 1589, Kelly left Dee in Trebonia, possibly to join Emperor Rudolf II's court in Prague. And probably spurred on by their constant quarreling and another possible connection to the Voynich manuscript via Rudolf, John Dee returned to England and the two men never saw each other again.
2: Yeah, so again, you were pointing out here a lot of connections to Rudolf. The manuscript, alchemy, all this kind of a secret knowledge kind of business here, and That's why people think that these two are likely suspects, or, you know, mostly Edward Kelly, but maybe Dee had some hand in it, too. You know, it doesn't hurt to
0: get some money from the king. Well, and to that point, Rudolph II had given Edward Kelly a fair amount of patronage, knighting him Sir Edward Kelly of Imani and New Lubin in 1590, and he was receiving lots of money and several estates by other nobility in the hopes his alchemical research would eventually produce some gold. But Rudolf II had Kelly in prison twice, first for possibly killing a court official in a duel, and the second time for not actually producing any gold. What? Yeah. Mm. And Ed- Edward Kelly would die a prisoner in late 1597 or early 1598, either from complications of breaking his leg during an escape attempt or by poisoning himself. Mm. Now, Kelly's connection to the Voynich manuscript as the possible author is very much debated, but there are some similarities to his work that some believe point to him being a likely suspect. However, much if not all of Kelly and Dee's work would have at the time seemed heretical to the church, so it was kept secret and guarded. But there are several writings of Kelly that have survived and translated into a work called The Alchemical Writings of Edward Kelly. Oh, that's a good title. That's pretty straightforward. It's like astonishing legends. (laughs) Although the facts and accuracy of the descriptions and purpose of Kelly's work is disputed, there are some indicators that make him suspect. One is his claim to know and transcribe a mystical spirit language that was termed angelic and then later termed Enochian after the tradition of sacred knowledge thought to have originated with the Old Testament patriarch Enoch, yet another connection to Oak Island. Kelly had convinced John Dee that angelic spirits were communicating with him via this Enochian language, and that he could receive these communications and then translate them to Dee. It's thought by some modern cryptographers that Kelly had invented this language, and from his close connection to John Dee and Dee's questionable connection to the Voynich manuscript via Roger Bacon, either alone and using Dee's reputation or with Dee's help, Kelly fabricated the manuscript in order to sell it to Rudolf II. So this is another one of the big theories. That mm-hmm. Kelly had the capability. He had the ability, again, catch me if you can situation, mm-hmm. to create a document like this. His skill set was rooted in that. And he could have drawn it up in an effort to generate income by selling this fake book of arcane secret knowledge right. to Rudolf II, who was a, a ready and willing buyer. 600 ducats, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll buy it on that. That's not bad. Yeah, that's over two kilos of gold. That's not bad. That you didn't have to make. Maybe that makes it worth it to do all that drawing and writing and, (laughs) you know, spend a lot of time on it. The manuscript seems to have taken a lot of work to some, uh, a a fair amount
2: of uh, precision work to complete, but maybe it was easier to make money that way than with alchemy. Well, another fascinating angle on this Kelly-Voynich connection, though, is the way this angelic communication supposedly worked, you know, according to Kelly anyway. Because that method can be seen by some cryptographers, as we'll see, to maybe be
0: how the Voynich manuscript was drafted as a fake. Yeah, Kelly claimed that he could see these angelic beings with a mirror or a crystal ball. The angels would then point to squares or cells on a table or grid, which resembled a crossword puzzle, but it had letters already in the squares. The first third of the message had each angelic word backwards, and then the remaining two thirds had each word forwards. These words were in the angelic language, but then Kelly received an English translation, he claimed, from tiny strips of paper that came out of the angel's mouth. That's yeah, like Zoltan, doesn't he? I don't know if he spits those yes. out of his mouth. but oh, uh, God, It's so crazy that you brought that up. I was just Googling that guy. Uh, that machine yeah. from Big, the yeah. movie Big. Oh, that's other right, things. yes. Except that it's not. There's a Zoltan and a Zoltar, and everybody gets them mixed up, uh. and the people that collect one of them get real mad when they say that it's the one from Big, and it's not. Uh, and I'll bet Zoltan really hates that, too. Anyway, with the the paper coming out of the angel's mouth, it's pretty fascinating. This sounds fairly familiar to what cryptographer Gordon Rugg suggests, which we'll be talking about in a little while.
2: Yeah, it does. We're going to take a look at uh, Gordon Rugg's theory, which is pretty well mapped out. And that's what struck me is the similarity here that he is seeing, Gordon Rugg, between this method that Kelly claimed to be communicating with angels and also Rugg's theory on how this, to him, possibly a nonsense manuscript, a piece of, uh, of hoaxing here, could be fabricated and have the patterns, the word patterns that it does. Because Gordon Rugg claims that there is a method
0: to the a cheese that he sees in the manuscript. There's a parallel between this system that Kelly's using to talk to angels and the results of an analytical view of what's written in the manuscript. They do seem like they could have been crafted in the same way. That's Rugg's theory.
2: Yeah, well, here, here's the basics of, uh, of how they both work, according to Rugg. That by using a text selection method, like what's called a Cardan grill, and that's, I thought it was card and grill. <laughs> Maybe it's something I know, similar. I two
0: when I first heard it, yeah. Yeah. Cardan, C-A-R-D-A-N grill, G-R-I-L-L-E. Right, and that was a known method of cryptograms in the late 16th
2: century, so that time period fits. And with a large, complicated table of meaningless syllables, Kelly could have made the meaningless text that had the statistical properties to what Rugg is calling the made-up language of Voynichese. So what Rugg is saying is that there is some pattern that doesn't fit a lot of languages that they know of, but there are statistical properties to what can be found in the Voynich manuscript, and that is used by this process here. Uh, what it is is that you you take a card with some holes cut out of it, and if you're going to send a code to somebody, you could do that now nowadays, is that you give the same card or duplicate card with the same holes punched out, and then you tell somebody, like, okay, go get a copy of this book with this edition. You place that over... Put the card the word, in the right spot, yeah.
0: and whatever letters it highlights or reveals, that's the message I'm sending. Yeah, you. and another but that way, connection. if someone intercepts the card, it means nothing to them along the way.
2: Exactly, but you have to have the same card in the same pa- hole pattern, and you have to have the same book or piece of text that you're laying it over. And also another connection to the Summerton Man which there are a couple more connections to the Summerton Man, but it's all about coding and, and different methods. So this card and grill method, Rug believes that that could be used to generate a lot of meaningless text pretty quickly, and maybe that's how Edward Kelly was coming up with this divine angel language, or how he was describing it.
0: Yeah, but some people argue, however, that Kelly's English translations of this original angelic language are quite different from his own writing style, so that points away from him being the author of the manuscript. And then the counter-argument is that Kelly just plagiarized the content of his angelic language from another source, but no other source material has ever been found that would make that claim stand up. Now, Dee believed in Kelly's angelic language because he thought it represented true glossolalia, or what's called speaking in tongues, usually meaningless or unintelligible speech uttered during religious ecstasy or in some states of schizophrenia. Dee was convinced Kelly wasn't making up this language from his imagination. Yeah, he was on board with this. He's treating him just like a telephone. Yeah. He's like, come on, get back, sit down. Yeah. More talking. That's More talking. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We got to piece this together.
2: And Kelly was like, yeah, I'm a little bit interested in this, but more so in the alchemy. They had similar
0: interests, but they didn't line up uh, proportionally. I still maintain that those two guys, I think it would be a really good, maybe dark comedy adapted to a musical for Broadway. <laughs> like a
2: uh, 17th century odd couple. Yeah. yeah, I think it'd be
0: amazing. I think it'd be amazing. So, um, if anybody out there is uh, is listening, I think you should look into Ed Kelly and John D uh, as a, as a musical. <laughs> well, it could be the next big. Their thing. writings, uh, or a lot of the, I think the
2: journals were held and released posthumously because of them potentially getting in trouble for that, and uh, they mostly kept out of trouble with the church. I think they they went for a review because of uh, their practice with necromancy a little, but they mostly stayed out of trouble. And then I think they just said, like, you know what? We've had enough of each other. So (laughs) well, you go do your thing. I'll go do mine. And uh, Kelly, yeah, he was fairly successful. He was leading somewhat of an extravagant lifestyle there in Central Europe for a while, getting money from people, rich people, to keep on doing what he was doing because they were hoping he'd make gold.
0: Catch me if you can. That's what (laughs) I say. It's a, it's a story as always time. I would
2: love to know what secrets they knew because obviously not everything that they were working on came spilling out after they were gone. Certainly uh, Kelly's reputation took a huge uh, uptick, you could say, in interest with biographers and historians because he's one of those characters of history, but I'm certain
0: they, they held on to some secrets. I would love to know those. That is pretty much going to wrap up part one of our series here. Next week, when we come back, we are going to talk about the current theories and research on the manuscript. And this is some juicy stuff, folks. It's everything from whether or not a young Leonardo da Vinci wrote it to whether or not it's actually been solved just in the past few months here. There's been a number of press releases in 2019, mystery solved <laughs> well, press releases. And yeah. of course, we want to get to that it and wouldn't cover It would be a
2: paranormal or arcane or cryptic mystery if we didn't get a mystery solved. Join us next week as we take a deep dive into the research and theories about the secrets the Voynich Manuscript may hold.
0: That's going to wrap up part one of our series on the Voynich Manuscript. We'll be back next week with part two. Please remember to support our
2: sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to
0: John Bolin.
2: Hi. Hi. Hello. I'm Carly Godsey. E-L-L-E-N. Galaxy wide in perpetuity. S-E-Y.
0: Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendel and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by
2: Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com, or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter,
0: Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.
2: As
1: humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming.